Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. of June. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. I don't know. Did you sing that to your kids when they were kids? Did your did your parents sing that to you when you were a kid? I don't know. I'm I didn't hear it until, now. you know, I was like in my early 20s, so. <laughs> Sorry. I know. I could just start saying it every day, Paul. I could play it for you. I can get it for you if you want. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> All right. So here is a, a news headline that um, might be a good conversation starter today. I think we tend to think of the Miss USA pageant as something that women compete in. Well, the Miss USA pageant um, will now, for the first time, have a transgender contestant. The uh, The Nevada contest was won last night by a biological male. So Miss USA will have a transgender contestant from the state of Nevada um, as a biological man was crowned Miss Nevada USA last night. You will see that person referred to consistently as a transgender woman. But, you know, this is, I think, one of the places in the conversation in the culture where we have to speak the truth and we have to be people of integrity. And so if we genuinely believe, as the Bible tells us, that God created us intentionally as male and female, then that's a a truth we must continue to speak, even in a culture that has become convinced of an alternate reality. Um, The Supreme Court left in place a decision that allowed a transgender student to use the bathroom corresponding to their gender identity. Um, I think that that is going to be an ongoing conversation in the culture. California has announced it will ban state-funded travel to the states of Arkansas, Florida, Montana, North Dakota, and West Virginia over what it deems anti-LGBTQ laws enacted in those states. So the transgender conversation is a big one in the culture today, conversations about gender identity. We are going to talk in the second hour today with Sam Albury um, about his uh, new book that really is, uh, it is what God has to say about our bodies. And um, Sam is really uh, adept at talking about issues of gender and identity and sexuality. Um, And so don't miss that conversation. But first up this morning, I've got Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University And we are going to talk about the Supreme Court's recent decision not to review the Virginia school transgender bathroom ban. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith joins me now from Cedarville University. Welcome back, sir. Hey, Carmen. How you doing? Well, I am. I am well. I am well. I hope you're well as well. 
Yeah, doing just fine. Uh, got through teaching a summer course, and uh, July looks to be a little bit more like a vacation, which is good. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. All right, let's talk about what is going on or not going on at the Supreme Court. Remind us about this Virginia um, school transgender bathroom case, and then tell us what the Supreme Court has decided um, and then how that affects us. So this is a case out of Gloucester County, Virginia, uh, where the school decided to refuse a, a transgender uh, student's request to use the boys' bathroom. Uh, they provided an alternative bathroom facility. Um, uh, the student decided to sue, <clears throat> and the student was successful uh, in the lawsuit. Uh, this was initiated during the Obama administration. Uh, it made its way through the legal system. Eventually, the Fourth Circuit Court uh, agreed that the uh, the decision to deny the bathroom was a violation of Title IX, uh, which which prevents federally funded schools from engaging in what uh, we usually call sex discrimination. And so the Supreme Court had a chance to hear this case. Obviously, the school board appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court gets to choose whether or not to hear cases. Uh, overwhelmingly, there are a few cases they have to hear. But generally, the court needs four of the nine justices to agree to hear a case. Uh, in this instance, only two justices, Thomas and Alito, uh, wanted to hear this particular case, which meant the Supreme Court declined hearing it. Um, now, if you listen to the media talk about when the court declines something, they often misrepresent or misinterpret what that means. They say things like, well, the court affirmed it or the, the court confirmed what happened at the lower court. That's not really true. The court just let the lower ruling stand. And for now, that ruling uh, means something in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, but it doesn't necessarily mean something as a national precedent. So there's a lot of there's a lot of politics that goes into this decision of whether or not to hear a case. Well, and it's my understanding that, you know, for a case to be ripe for the Supreme Court's hearing, there's just right. a lot of boxes that have to be checked off. And so, um, you know, if this issue or concern arises in other districts across the country, federal districts, um, then it's possible. And and if those district courts disagree across the country in the outcome, then it's possible that the Supreme Court takes up another case, a similar case in the future. So, it you know, it's just a yes, it's a process. We appreciate you reminding us of that. Um, could we talk a little bit uh, this morning about election reform? We hear uh, we we hear all kinds of things related to campaign financing or or voter laws or term limits. What's sort of out there in the conversation today about election reform? Well, it's it's an important issue right now for both parties because our elections have been so close, especially at the federal level. And so in that sense, it doesn't surprise me that the Democrats and the Republicans are kind of pitching their own versions of what election reform uh, might look like, whether that's at the state level, uh, the local level, or even at the federal level. Uh, the most high-profile effort, of course, has been from the Democrats at the federal level uh, with House Bill 1 and Senate Bill 1, uh, which was just recently torpedoed by the Senate. Uh, and that was a really massive piece of leg legislation, mostly about election reform, but also about a lot of other things. Uh, but I think the, the right narrative to attach to that particular bill was that it was an effort to federalize state and local elections in many ways. Um, and that's really what I think created the opposition from the Republican Party, 
Uh, it had a lot of pieces to it. It tried to require states to provide early voting. Uh, it tried to um, require people to disclose more information if they donated, uh, more disclaimers and advertising. Uh, so it is, is a pretty wide ranging piece of legislation. But as you might expect, it created a great deal of controversy. And eventually the Senate uh, decided not to push it forward. They couldn't rally enough support in the Senate to get over the filibuster hurdle. Um, and so you know, there's a lot of discussion of election reform. Um, I'm not sure it's always legitimate discussion, frankly. I think a lot of it's just political posturing by both parties trying to appeal to their own base of, of support. Um, and I'm not sure that either party really has the best interests of the country in mind when it talks about these kinds of reforms. Okay, since you um, mentioned the filibuster, could we have a little bit of a primer? Um, We hear the word a lot. I'm not sure everybody has perfect clarity on exactly what it is and what kinds of discussions um, are being had related to it. So the filibuster is an old tool in the Senate. It's not in the Constitution itself, but it's part of the Senate's rules uh, that allow for a particular senator or a group of senators to hold control of the floor of the U.S. Senate while a vote's taking place. Um, You can understand kind of the theory behind it. The goal is to give senators a chance to speak their mind, you know, to not rush through legislation, to give them an opportunity to deliberate and persuade each other uh, until before there's an actual vote that happens. But the filibuster has really grown into sort of a a tool of, of the minority party to really be an obstacle to the majority. And that's true for the Republicans and for the Democrats. Uh, the most important element of the filibuster is you need 60 votes to turn it off. And so unless you can get 60 votes of support in the Senate, uh, there's no guarantee you can get a bill actually to, to, to the point of the vote on the floor of the Senate itself. And so as you might often see, uh, majority parties, when they don't have 60 seats in the Senate, which generally they don't, um, often bemoan the filibuster, saying that the minority is using this to block their will, and really it's a tool against democracy is the language you often hear. Um, and of course, the minority party, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, argue this is a foundational element of our system of government. We have to protect the filibuster, and if we get rid of the filibuster, then our form of government is in jeopardy. Um, and there are truths on both sides of those arguments, honestly. It is an anti-democratic measure. Yeah, it requires a supermajority vote to get things done. Uh, but in our Constitution, so does things like uh, passing a treaty requires a supermajority vote, or impeaching and removing a president requires a supermajority vote as well. So that isn't always unusual. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, it's important that we protect minority rights. Uh, our system is built on the protection of minority rights to a degree. And so this little piece of rule in the Senate, I think, actually does do some of that. So uh, it's it's a huge topic right now. Progressives want to get rid of it. Uh, and Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, the senators from uh, Arizona and West Virginia, respectively, are really their big obstacles right now to getting that done. All right. We're talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about the best way to deal with bad ideas. And maybe it's not legislation. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We're covering some of the 
Political headlines of the day, things that affect us where we live each and every day, what our kids are taught in school, the stories we tell about ourselves in our own communities. Um, all of those things are at issue and under discussion in the nation's capital in various spaces and places. And so last week, one of the things that you might have missed is that the vice president um, broke a tie in the Senate over the confirmation of a nomination of uh, one of President Biden's choices for an administrative role in um, in his administration. And that role is kind of like a glorified HR position, um, but the uh, Office of Personnel Management nominee um, was a 50-50 you know, had a 50-50 vote in the Senate, which means there were 50 Republicans uh, who did not think she should be confirmed and 50 Democrats who thought she should be confirmed. And the vice president had to show up to break the tie. What uh, was this conversation over, Mark Caleb Smith, and what larger conversation going on in the country um, does it point us toward? Well, it's, I mean, the conversation was over and the issue we're really wrestling with um, as a society to some degree right now is over uh, critical race theory and how we view race in the United States of America. And really, maybe more importantly, how we teach about race in our schools and our curriculum um, and the narratives that we produce uh, about race. you know, I guess it shouldn't surprise me uh, that race and this discussion has really been folded into the culture war um, between the two parties and between the two ideologies that are sort of at struggle in the United States at the moment. Um, and critical race theory is really growing into a significant uh, political issue. You know, some commentators are kind of uh, comparing it to the Tea Party movement of the late 2000s or 2010. Uh, era or so. And that's probably a relatively good comparison. Um, But recent events, you know, whether we're talking about George Floyd or the protests from last year, uh, have brought the issue of race to the forefront. And this discussion of critical race theory is certainly a product of that. And so when it comes to conversations that are taking place at a national level, conversations about um, critical race theory and how, uh, what should be taught and how things should be taught. And I think then we get into in, into conversations about, you know, what's really happening in America's classrooms. And that's, you know, that's hard for people to really keep an eye on and an ear to. You know, what we can pay attention to are sort of the larger, more public conversations about this. So I guess yeah. I'm wondering, you know, from your viewpoint, you know, if you're looking at a, a competing sets of ideas in the culture is legislation, is is codification in law, you know, sort of the best way to deal with competing ideas, or are there better ways to do that? You know, it's it's a terrific question, and it's one that we struggle with uh, consistently in a free society. Uh, but I think if you look into our recent past, you see some examples, some efforts to try to deal with unpopular ideas through legislation. Uh, Probably the best example is in the early 20th century to the middle of the 20th century, there's a series of pieces of legislation trying to regulate the teaching of communism or the teaching of ideas about the overthrow of American government. Um, And people who are writing about such ideas and teaching such ideas came under regulation and 
uh, in many instances, prosecution and even imprisonment uh, for advocating such ideas. Now, I'm not talking about engaging in them or, you know, uprising or, cons or actually conspiring to overthrow the government, but teaching about them and writing about them uh, could land them in jail. And as much as I'm an anti-communist and I, I really, you know, would never favor that form of government and would fight against it, uh, that's probably not the best way to deal with unpopular ideas is to try to marginalize them and imprison them. Um, there's a, and I understand it at some level, but there's a great deal of fear about certain ideas and some of that fear is appropriate. You know, communism was a major threat and to some degree you have to be vigilant and stand against it. But uh, banning them from a classroom discussion, banning pieces of literature, uh, forbidding students from talking about or writing about or thinking about particular things is probably not the best approach. Now, some of the bills that are being floated about with the critical race theory don't go that far. You know, they don't ban ideas necessarily, but they certainly try to ban controversy and ban divisiveness um, and try to prevent teachers from teaching things from a certain perspective. You know, if we think of it in this argument, they're talking about whether to teach something from the 1619 perspective or from the 1776 perspective. And they look at these as competing ideas. Um, you know, as a professor in a perfect world, I'd like to put both of those sets of ideas in front of a student and help them think through those things critically. But also I have to understand, you know, elementary students, for example, aren't in a position to do that properly. Middle school students aren't really in a position to do that properly, most likely either. Um, and so what are you going to teach them at those ages about race and about America's system of government and how it functions? This is an important conversation, but I'm not sure bills and legislation are the best way to get at it. All right. We have a listener who's just straight up asking, I think, the question that um, most of us arrive at on a day to day basis. Um, could you explain exactly what critical race theory is and how it is being taught to our kids? And my my initial response to this person is, you know, we will try, but this is really complicated. I think it's somewhat dependent upon who you're talking with and the moment you're talking with them and their understanding and experience of um, of either racism or anti-racism, discrimination, anti-discrimination, present discrimination. I mean, I, it is it, it is a really complex topic. It is a complex topic. Um, let me give you the best sort of a, a, hopefully a good thumbnail definition of it. Uh, it's an approach to explaining society in a way that um, uh, racial categories are important indicators of who's oppressed and who is oppressing. And so it, it begins with this belief that um, race is an indicator of power. And in our system, in our culture, they would argue uh, white people are in a position of power and authority. People of color, particularly African-Americans, but people of color are in a position of inferiority, and they're going to argue that our systems of government have been constructed around that ideal, and, and this, the whole government itself is designed and the economy is designed uh, to perpetuate this division between whites who are in a position of power and others who are not. Um, and so it begins with the understanding that America is really rooted in slavery and rooted in racism, and that therefore dictates how things spin out into the future uh, from the American founding. And as with many ideas, you can see sort of kernels of truth in that, right? I mean, we did talk about race at our founding. We, slavery was a significant issue for our founders, and it perpetuated itself uh, until the Civil War. At the same time, you know, you have to understand 
there were also the seeds of defeating slavery in our founding as well. Uh, the Declaration of Independence and the language there is anti-slavery to some to a great extent. And so um, there's a, it's very complicated uh, and, and it's largely rooted in a historical narrative and understanding of, of, of the United States. And then it plays that forward into how we should structure our society as a result. Uh, but yeah, that's a good, hopefully a good at least summary of the theory. Yeah, that's very helpful. All right, um, Mark, we got to leave it right there. As always, thank you so much. The conversations we have with you are so helpful. Thank you for, you know, ranging around with us in what's happening at a national level and then bringing it home uh, to us right where we live. We, we really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Carmen. You take care. You too. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We'll be right back. Okay, so I frequently um, hear about cryptocurrency in the news, um, and then that leads to conversations about blockchain, and then I just realize I don't even know what they're talking about. I don't understand Bitcoin. I don't, I don't get it. So, um, you know, to satisfy my own intellectual curiosity and to uh, fill this gap in my own understanding of what's happening in the culture... We have a professor from North Dakota State University, James Catan, coming on next. We're going to talk about what is cryptocurrency and the ethical concerns related to it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Few things are more difficult than dealing with a struggling teen. And the stress of coping with a teen can put incredible pressure on mom and dad's marriage. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I've seen marriages disintegrate because of the stress of raising teens. On the other hand, I've seen husbands and wives draw closer because of their common goal. Whatever the case in your household, I'd challenge you to put concentrated effort into cultivating your marriage. Identify how your teen's out-of-control behavior might be specifically damaging your relationship. Determine to handle the journey together instead of separately. Hang in there. It won't be long before your teen becomes an adult and finally says, thank you. Want to see Mark Gregston teach? Look for the Dealing with Today's Teens small group curriculum and DVD set online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Dr. James Caton joins me now from North Dakota State University. I might need to warn the professor in advance. This is going to be like the most extreme 101 version of cryptocurrency you've ever offered. But welcome. Uh, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> so I have in my hands crypto liquidity, the blockchain and monetary stability piece that you wrote. Um, and let me just say... I don't think that we can go quite that far in our conversation today, um, but I look forward to unpacking with you what is cryptocurrency, why is there so much talk about it, not only in the investing community, but in the sort of larger larger macroeconomic monetary policy space, and what should we as just like regular people know about what's going on? Yeah, I think that's a good question, Carmen. You know, I was just having a conversation uh, last night with somebody, 
and uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency became a topic of conversation. And they said, you know, I have no idea about any of that. And, and I think that that's not uncommon for, for people not to be really aware of what that is. So I think the easiest way to think about it is to say that uh, blockchain is a means of keeping a shared account. Um, so, you know, you can have like an Excel sheet where you save records, uh, but you can edit that Excel sheet. Um, if you have a blockchain, everybody has the same access to, uh, access to the same sh sheet, the spreadsheet, but not everybody can edit it. Rather, in order to edit the blockchain, you have to have agreement from everybody that's using it, or at least a majority of users, I should say. Um, and so that prevents um, tampering of the records. And now we all have a shared record that we all can agree upon um, and we, we don't need any third party to hold that record for us. The blockchain, which is just a program, is going to do that with the rules that, that, that govern the changing of the, the spreadsheet. Okay, I learned a new term just doing research for our conversation today, and that term is Binance. Is that actually like something that we're supposed to be using today in reference to conversations related to this versus finance? So Binance is finance. Um, the, uh, a popular word that people use to describe that is called decentralized finance. And what that means is that instead of going to the bank and saving your money at the bank, and then the bank decides where to lend that money, you take your money to the blockchain or you use cryptocurrency on the blockchain. And so you get to save your money there and then lend it to others who are also using the blockchain. No third party involved. Um, everything can happen automatically according to the rules of the program. So I'm thinking that like um, uh, central, the central bank, uh, central banking and big banks don't like this. Would I be right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, I, uh, maybe that's too strong of a statement. A lot of central banks aren't sure how to respond to this. And there, there's two aspects. The first is attempts at regulation. Um, mm. Central banks don't like competition necessarily. Uh, if you're using Bitcoin as money, that means that you're not using the dollar as money for your transactions, or at least for those transactions where you are using Bitcoin. You're not using the dollar. Uh, and so that provides some currency competition, um, which makes the job of the central bank a little bit more difficult. Um, the second aspect is that central banks are also attempting to create their own digital currencies. Um, part of it is just due to the popularity, popularity of blockchain. Uh, I think part of it is also due to a desire to um, have money that can be tracked. Uh, a lot of complaints about blockchain from regulator go along the lines of something like, well, um, you know, cryptocurrency is used to shield identity so that people can engage in nefarious activities. Um, therefore, we want to have um, a replacement for that because we don't want people engaged in nefarious activities. Of course, not that people weren't engaged in such nefarious activities uh, beforehand, uh, but the central bank sees it as its job to uh, try to prevent opportunities for that. 
All right. It it is a volatile market, this cryptocurrency market. Um, we see Bitcoin and I'm I thinking maybe it's Ethereum, um, mm. which I'll just confess to you, you know, Bitcoin's kind of the only one I've ever heard of. Apparently, there are lots of them, um, including one that looks like either Doggy Coin or Dogecoin. Um, that's apparently on the rise because Elon Musk and the guy uh, who was the co-founder of Ethereum moved something like $300 billion in this market in just the last week. Like, this is a very volatile market. And I think there's a lot of people who wonder, are there any assets behind these cryptocurrencies? Okay, so you asked a, a number of questions there. Um, I know. I'm sorry. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, also, I'm on a huge learning curve here today. Yeah, there's just so much to learn, um, no doubt. And you talk about cryptocurrencies. And so first, you got to wrap your head around cryptocurrencies. Well, the truth is a cryptocurrency is really just sort of like a side effect of a blockchain in the sense that the blockchain is that ledger. It's this accounting ledger. Um, and that accounting ledger is assigned to some sort of asset. And so the first thing that, that's obvious enough to make is a digital asset, um, which doesn't necessarily have any direct backing. But, you know, the same is true for the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar doesn't have direct backing. It just has a central bank who's governing its supply and also attempts to influence its demand. Um, the cryptocurrencies don't need to have backing to have value. Um, if people see them as, as a useful alternative to existing currencies. And again, the, the obvious um, attraction of a cryptocurrency, say like Bitcoin, is that there's only so much of it. The program limits how much Bitcoin can be made. Um, of course, there are competing cryptocurrencies. Uh, there are also competing national currencies. So um, that's okay. And a lot of these competing cryptocurrencies offer special services. So Ethereum is so fascinating. And I encourage anybody who is out there listening to just take a look at Ethereum because what the e Ethereum is really is an ecosystem. And people are starting businesses using the Ethereum ecosystem. And there are other competing ecosystems. It's not just Ethereum. Um, IBM has created its own ecosystem called Hyperledger. Um, Microsoft has created its own ecosystem called Azure. And, um, you know, Ethereum was the one that spearheaded that and is, is totally open source. Um, so you can use Ethereum, which is a cryptocurrency, and then you can create apps on the Ethereum ecosystem, um, ideally or, or most likely aimed at attaining profit. Now, some of these apps are like what you just mentioned. You said Binance is Bitcoin finance, but um, the more general term decentralized finance is a huge part of Ethereum now uh, where people are lending cryptocurrency and tokens to one another um, using these apps. All right. We have a listener, Scott, who is asking, all right, so how is Bitcoin, or I suppose we could use any example here, worth, quote, anything if it's not based on anything? So this gets us back to that, uh, that conversation about blockchain and this accounting ledger. There mm -hmm. is some there there. It's just that it's not the kind of there we're used to. Right. So as, as I said before, the dollar is not backed by anything. Um, most 
major currencies are backed by nothing except for a promise, uh, except for a promise by the central bank to engage in responsible monetary policy. Um, that's about it. And so if you understand value, all that matters is that people demand something. It doesn't matter why they demand it. They, they demand it because they see value in the thing, but any other details aren't really um, pertinent to the story in economics in terms of how, why value is created or that value exists. That somebody demands Bitcoin because they expect they'll be able to spend it is sufficient. And so if you have a market, for example, that accepts Bitcoin, uh, within the group of uh, producers and traders, um, then you can use Bitcoin in that market to get the goods that you like. Um, if you expect that this is going to be true in the future on a grand scale, then you'll be willing to speculate on Bitcoin. And that's what we've been seeing with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies over the last several years, is that many people are expecting that, that Bitcoin is going to matter, that these cryptocurrencies and blockchain ecosystems are going to matter even more than they do now. And they are betting on a higher price. All right. You have done a lot of thinking um, about this, and a lot of us are just getting up to speed. So thank you for your patience with us this morning. I am going to continue my conversation with Professor James Caton from North Dakota State University about cryptocurrency, crypto liquidity, all kinds of, I don't know, crypto things. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. He put that All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. James Caton, who's being very patient with me this morning. He's a professor at North Dakota State University, and he knows a whole lot about something I know nothing about. Um, and that is uh, that is what I would describe as decentralized finance. So I that's a new term I've learned today. We are talking about blockchain. We are talking about cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, which you have probably heard of before. Um, it's not just an investment strategy. Like these are economic ecosystems that are are frankly just different than um, the way most of us have thought about. Hey, I direct deposit my check into the bank. Well, I used to actually get a paper check and go to the bank and deposit it, and I don't do that anymore. I now do it all digitally, and I trust that it's all happening. Um, there's a lot happening digitally today, um, and I think that just makes us makes some of us uncomfortable who are sort of used to a paper trail for everything. So, um, again, uh, Dr. Caton, thank you so much for um, for joining us today and beginning this conversation. Um, lots of questions thank you from. Yeah, lots of questions from from listeners. I think part of this is there's a whole new language to learn. I mean, there, there's just so many um, words that we don't know the meaning of. And so it's hard for us sometimes, you know, when a sentence includes two words that we don't actually know what those words really mean, um, the words are new to us, then we have a hard time, you know, like finding our way to understanding what's really happening. So um, we're understanding that blockchain is basically a digital accounting ledger um, that's that's shared. And although everyone can't edit it, it's like a community that makes decisions. Do I kind of have that right in terms of I blockchain? Think, I think that's a good start, Carmen. Okay. Because when we talk about like open source, like I don't know that everybody even understands that, but that's what a lot of these um, – conversations are about as well. That seems, you know, and, and the people behind this, frankly, seem like teenagers to me, which I know just makes me sound old. Well, you know, it, it's certainly true that um, Ethereum is spearheaded 
um, by a lot of young people and Bitcoin as well. Um, but, you know, that doesn't change the value of the technology. I mean, at some point, Bill Gates was young. At some point, Steve Jobs was young. And a lot of young people do change the world. And I think that's what we're seeing um, with cryptocurrency and blockchain. I think maybe um, one way for your listeners to understand how to think about Bitcoin, and maybe they don't realize this, but uh, when they save their money, they get to choose how they save it. They'll probably take it to the bank and leave it there and, and use their debit card or um, what have you uh, when, they're, when they're making their withdrawals, when they're spending their money. Um, but they could also have what's called a money market mutual fund or another word, you know, uh, that's a fancy term for meaning that you can put your, your wealth in foreign currency, for example. So instead of saving your wealth in dollars, maybe you want to save your wealth in pounds or euros. Um, and so you go to an intermediary, uh, maybe E-Trade or something like this, that says they're going to allow you to save your wealth, trade your dollars for foreign currency. And then if you ever want to transfer them back and spend that in dollars, they'll, they will allow that for you. And so then your wealth is tied to the value of those foreign currencies that you'd be holding. And this is a uh, you know, relatively common practice um, in finance. Um, and again, a cryptocurrency is just another currency. And so you could just the same, and tr if, trans if costs are low enough for doing so, um, save your money in a cryptocurrency instead of saving um, you know, in, in uh, British pounds or in euros. So I think this conversation is potentially as much about globalization and the democratization of, um, of money and mm. people's access to money um, versus the controlled ways or, or the ways in which all of those decisions have been cent more centrally controlled in the past. And my guess is that's what makes some people very uncomfortable. Like this no longer sounds like the guy at the bank runs a credit check and decides whether or not I can have access to a certain amount of money for something I think I want to do and I um, you know, am going to gain access to that money and I am going to pay some amount to have access to that money. But I think that is kind of what we're talking about. It's just that this globalizes it and democratizes the decision making. Yeah, I think you're on to something. And, you know, in the United States, it's difficult at present to think about this, especially for those who were born, say, you know, after 1990, where inflation really started tapering in the 90s in the U.S., you know, and uh, you, you still saw some, you noticed some inflation during the 90s, but by the 2000s, inflation was hardly noticeable each year. Uh, and it's still hardly noticeable, except in, in the most very recent uh, months, we've been seeing more inflation than we've seen in quite some time. Uh, but if you're from a country that isn't responsible with its monetary policy, um, if you live in Venezuela, for example, you would absolutely love to have Bitcoin uh, because the alternative is using uh, money that is supported by the government that devalues quite often. Um, you know, you have to take almost like in Weimar, Germany, basically, um, you know, take wheelbarrows of money places in order to engage in transactions in Venezuela. If you want to buy a turkey, you need to have many stacks of, of, uh, of the currency that they offer there. Um, and that's no good for anybody. And so in the least, maybe what your viewers can think about is that um, in the worst case where governments are being irresponsible with their, the money, 
um, cryptocurrencies offer a relatively safe alternative. It might seem like Bitcoin is volatile in terms of its price. It loses half of its value in, in a month or two. Um, but the truth is, is that if you live under a government that's irresponsible with monetary policy, you can expect not only to lose half the value of your money in a few months, but m continually be losing half of the value of your money. Whereas Bitcoin will probably rebound at some point, um, the value of, of currency from an irresponsible government will not be rebounding. All right. There's a lot more out there for you guys to read. Dr. James Lee Caton, C-A-T-O-N. There's a great piece called Crypto Liquidity, the Blockchain and Monetary Stability, in which he makes, um, you know, pretty good uh, argument here related to the adoption of cryptocurrencies, especially um, as they might allow for the expansion of money to be available in um, in ways and in places related to economic crisis and, as he's just described, countries where um, there's no stability in terms of um, the current way that money works in those places. I don't know. That's probably not a very clear summary of what you've said in this very rich um, research piece and abstract. So let me just um, let me just say, if you guys are interested in this, go track him down. Dr. James Lee Caton, C-A-T-O-N. He is at North Dakota State University in Fargo. So big shout out this morning to all of our wonderful listeners uh, in, in Fargo, Moorhead, listening to us this morning um, on 102.5 FM and AM 1200. Um, so blessings uh, to, you know, to everybody out there in Fargo this morning. All right, uh, Dr. Caton, thank you so much for joining us. Let's continue this conversation in the future. All right. Thanks again for having me, Carmen. That sounds good. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back. All right. Uh, you guys are making all kinds of observations on the text line this morning um, uh, relative to this conversation and others. So just remember, you can always text me during the show, 877-933-2484. I try to answer uh, people's texts in real time as I can. So now that's what I'll be doing between now and when the second hour of Mornings with Carmen gets going, we've got another hour, so stay tuned. Let me let me ask this question, which I have not yet asked this morning. Where in the word are you today? Lots of good questions this morning about money and what Scripture has to say. And so anyway, just a good reminder that, um, you know, in Jesus's day, it was a coin with Caesar's head on it. So we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.